0: This week's episode or installment of Desolation Radio with me and not Dan. No, it's right. How are you doing, Dan? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, so it's like changed change that, like, on, um, to that episode of Pointless when it was the 100th
1: episode. So <laughs> Alex like, and, yeah, they, we've moved on from being the Wayne Lineker and Callum Best to Alexander Armstrong and Richard Osmond. Yeah, pretty much. More appropriate.
0: Yeah, I thought we'd go for that kind of approach. So uh, today we're talking about history of Wales. But not all of it because it's way too long. So I've done um, what Dan sometimes does, like this Melvin Bragg type intro. So if you bear with me, I'll try and try and read it off. So, history is an integral component in the understanding of our country and people within it and how they identify with it. Be it victory or defeat a nation draws its identity, culture and self from bygone events to help shape how it's viewed. You know, sometimes for its benefit like with the British Empire, still seen as a positive thing, not so much now. So Wales' history has traditionally tied with Britain's, so much so that in the 19th century encyclopedia entry for Wales, it simply said, just see England. So today we're joined by Dr. Martin Johns, who teaches and researches the 20th century history of Wales and Britain in Swansea Uni, to discuss his book, which was Wales well, since 1939 to 2012, not the title of the book, but when it was published, so I thought it would be a cut off there, as you didn't really predict much afterwards. Nope. So, based on that intro, is there any likelihood that you'll now give me
2: a degree in history from Swansea? Um, probably not. All right. But you have to come and study for three <laughs> years rather than five minutes. Uh-uh. <laughs>
1: that
0: really is. All right, so, first of all, why did you write your book? And after that, if you give us like, an overview of it.
2: Okay, I mean academia is a, is a job as, as well as anything and you have to kind of find your niche and previously I'd worked on kind of sport and popular culture which is important particularly in Wales it is one of the things that has kind of made Wales what it is um, in the absence of a state and a, a legal system etc. But it's a narrow niche and kind of people used to take the mickey out of me for being a historian of football. Um, So I kind of wanted to do something more mainstream that more people would read and in some ways was kind of more important. So there was a kind of a career element to it, wanting to write a book that more people would read than something a little bit more niche. But also no one had written a post-war history of Wales. There are histories of Wales that uncover the entire kind of two millennia. Um, there are histories on aspects of kind of post-war Wales, but there isn't something that try to, tries and brings it all together. And I thought there was a story there. Something happens to Wales in this period. It moves from being a kind of a nice idea, um, something sentimental, something which people cared about, but was in some ways kind of an idea more than anything, something quite abstract, to something real. With devolution, Wales became at least a partially self-governing nation. It became a political entity. And if you'd have said to someone in 1939, that 70 odd years later, Wales would have what essentially was its own parliament, there would have been a huge amount of surprise, surprise in that. Wales developed in many remarkable ways. And there is a story there just as to why that happened that I kind of wanted to look at.
0: Do you think within it, um, like the Welsh people have had st- like, you know, you're saying that they're quite surprised uh, if you, they were to look into the future and Wales to be to become a devolved nation, that, that perhaps the people weren't that always politically engaged, in a sense?
2: Well, before the Second World War, people were politically engaged, and in some ways more politically engaged than people are today, but not driven by nationalism or national identity, but driven by class politics. You know, the Britain and the Wales of between the wars is a deeply unequal society and particularly in the South Wales Valley suffering from huge economic inequalities and the interwar depression was a a tragedy, a social tragedy, an economic tragedy, a cultural tragedy. And the solution to that just didn't seem to lie in breaking Wales away from Britain, it didn't even seem to lie in Britain for many people, it was about changing global politics Putting forward class interests, um, so people were politically engaged, but Wales wasn't a political identity for the vast majority of people. Plaid Cymru were a pressure group, not a political party. Before the Second World War, they were seen as kind of romantic idealists, and you know many people wouldn't have even have, have, have heard of them.
0: Do you think that's partly to do? I mean, you obviously started in nineteen thirty-nine and with I guess the idea of perhaps Britishness being implemented in World War Two, when you, you write writing your book about you know you have Welsh divisions and to some extent that the soldiers would use Welsh to kind of confuse the enemies, or like to you know, speak in secret.
2: Yeah, the, wa- the war war's key to this. It was a very kind of conscious decision to start in thirty nine rather than 1945, which would be a much more kind of conventional yeah, with historical like the, the break.
0: Post-war kind of spending yeah. and like the growth, uh, growth of the welfare state.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. What I wanted to do was kind of go back, because the war, the, the war's fundamental to kind of understanding Britain, because its legacy... Um, kind of hangs over us even today. You know, you could argue that kind of the Second World War had an influence on Brexit, kind of British ideas of kind of grandeur when it was a nation that really mattered in global terms. And in kind of historical terms, the Second World War is in many ways the height of Britishness. This is Britain pulling together um, and doing something which was genuinely important in, in global terms. And the Welsh were an important component in that. Welsh people fought and died, for what essentially was was world peace, but also for Britain. And historians have kind of told that story about the war as a moment of Britishness. But when you start scratching the surface, you see a slightly different picture because Britishness meant different things for different people. The Welsh miners' idea of Britishness was not the idea of some aristocrat in the south of England. The whole character of Britishness is... Is plural it means different things to different people and that gets forgotten in a lot of kind of debate today about Scotland breaking away and what the future of Wales should be there's almost like this monolithic idea of Britishness whereas in the past it, it meant completely different things to different people and people were fighting for for Wales as well as Britain because there for them Britain was the South Wales valleys or wherever they live but also the state starts to wake up to the fact that Britain is a plural place as well because if you are asking people to sacrifice their lives for their country, you need to recognise that the country is a, a multi-dimensional place. So, whereas initially, for example, um, the Welsh language broadcasting on the radio stops um, with the outbreak of war, very quickly it comes back. Because how can you tell people that you're fighting for your way of life when you're saying, but actually, we're not going to put your f- first mother, your first language, your mother language on the radio, and people are thrown together um, evacuees come into rural Wales and suddenly you've got Welsh-speaking families living with um, a kid from the Liverpool slums and at one level that makes people conscious that they've got something in common and it increases a bond of Britishness but it also makes you realise actually we're different we, we speak a different language we have a different we have a different culture suddenly Welsh people are listening to the radio more because There's a a greater desire to know what's going on in the world. You've got American soldiers, black soldiers coming to Wales. So Wales is kind of waking up to its position in the world. So at one level, the war is all about Britishness. It is the great moment in British history um, in lots of different ways. But it's also a moment when both the state and ordinary people in many ways wake up to the fact that that Britain means lots of different things to different people. Um, so it, it is a moment when kind of you do see an awakening of Welsh identity in some ways.
1: It's fascinating what you said about Britain being a, a plural identity. As you said, I think that has been lost in recent debates. I mean, there's a, fam- a famous quote, I think it's by Gwynvore Evans, that's often trotted out, we said, Britishness is a, a synonym for Englishness, which is extended over the, the Welsh and Scots and the Irish, or something yeah. to that effect. Um, yeah. The other thing I was going to talk about, I mean, there's a book called Ash on the Young Man's Sleeve, which is about experience of wartime life in cardiff which i thought look it looks at like this sort of everything you, you talk about in your book mm-hmm. brilliantly like the this the, the experience of the war for normal people and it's an interesting sort of historical artifact this book because it's written by it's danny absey isn't it the, the sort of yeah. brother of leo Abzi, or maybe the way yes. around there, it's danny actually it's about a jewish family living in cardiff and they it's it, it's amazing because it you look back and for example there's a boxing match and they sing god save the queen before the boxing match and things like that. I would think that would be a very a rarity today in Wales, you wouldn't expect that in a boxing match. And the fact he goes and watches Glamorgan play cricket and how and he dreams about playing cricket for England, but how he's also starts thinking about rugby for Wales and things like that. There's sort of like little bits of it suggests a growing Welsh identity, but it's also definitely kept within this wider sort of plural Britishness, which is really really interesting.
2: I mean, national identities, it's not a case of either or, and and, and too often in contemporary politics it gets portrayed that way, as if you have to make a choice. And most people didn't feel they had to make a choice. There was no contradiction for the vast majority of people between being British and Welsh. You could sing God Save the Queen without in any way undermining your your sense of Welshness. Um, that has lessened as, as time has, has, has gone on and, and Welshness has been politicised, but particularly when we're talking about the middle of the 20th century, um, particularly during the war, you, you know, they went hand in hand. They weren't separate entities. And, you know, when we think about kind of the pr- pluralness of Britishness, nobody would say, wait, there's one version of Welshness. Nobody would say, you know, it's got to be based upon the Welsh language or chapels or being from the valleys." We all accept you know, in today's society, that Welshness means different things to different people. So why should we imagine that Britishness has to have one version um, of it? There is a peculiarly kind of odd kind of Britishness based upon nostalgia and the empire and all the things that kind of Brexit played up to, but that isn't everyone's Britishness. That's not the Britishness that you'd find in a kind of a council estate in London amongst someone who's kind of, you know, whose parents grew up in the Caribbean.
0: Do you think, in that sense, then that um, so, like, with voter turnout and perhaps people who stop being so politically engaged and interested in current current events, is that related to Britishness in a sense, or do you, is that a sense that you know have just been left behind by this? The notion, the,
2: the disenchantment with politics is something that extends way beyond Wales or, or, or indeed Britain, and. I think what we're seeing a situation is that global capitalism has failed many people and people are feeling angry and left behind and alienated and people turn to different solutions for that in some parts of the world that's meant voting for Donald Trump, for some people it's about voting Brexit, for some people it's about voting for Scottish independence but behind all of these things is a sense that somehow the individual doesn't matter Anymore, And that grows gradually over the post-war period because the state grows. And as the state gets bigger, um, it almost feels more remote from people. Um, it, before the Second World War, the state, you know, it, it mattered, but it didn't dictate so many aspects of your life. Um, mm. it, isn't, it isn't such a big entity. There isn't the same level of welfare state. The education system isn't quite as important um, as, as it became so as the state becomes bigger and interferes in people's lives more, driven for the right reasons, that has some positive outcomes, but it doesn't have it doesn't create a utopia. And the state ends up getting blamed for things that in the past capitalism would have been blamed for. Well
0: like I'm a fan for um, Well, I guess it depends on like, who's Yeah.: all, or
2: Yeah, all, all kinds of all kinds of things end up at the feet of the state. Uh, you know, someone was telling me the other day that they voted for Brexit, and you know, and I was asking them why, and they gave the example of they'd been involved in some project, um, and they'd had a village, a village hall built with EU money, and they were moaning about the bureaucracy involved, that it kind of took ages to get a decision, they had to fill in this form and this form, and they used that as an example that EU didn't work, but kind of ignoring the fact that the yeah they got a the hall <laughs> out of it. So the state has almost created this kind of back, this rod for its own back, by becoming something that serves people's lives. And those people who don't get the service they feel they deserve, and often they don't get the service they feel they deserve, um, feel angry at it and therefore alienated um, from it. If Can that I makes re- sense. Can I
1: rewind a sec? Yeah. Going back to what you said, Mike. About um, I've got a few questions. So there's been, a lever history, and a few that I've got a few burning questions. Basically, um. You said about like the fact that World War Two um, was almost just coming together of Britishness, and, and it was also the sort of almost the kernel of the growth of Welsh identity in many ways as well. I read a few articles which have been a bit weird. Like, so I read that Clapham one on like C.B. Stanton and Keir Hardy. That's one that I've always found interesting because the language used when I talking about like C.B. Stanton, that was a miners' leader and like a First World War patriot. Wasn't he? So go way before 1939 apologies, but in the language you use in that, and the language uh, Simon Jenkins is another PhD student in Cardiff who's doing stuff on like racialisation in, Car- in Cardiff and things, also pre-World War One and doing World War One. What's interesting is that there are Welsh people in Wales who refer to themselves as Englishmen, mm. Can you? and that's what I thought was, I've always found a bit weird, Like, so I accept that Britishness is a plural identity, but then you read in the Western Mail and you read these quotes from miners, leaders and things like that who say, like, this is a friend to us as Englishmen. And is that just... Why is it... Can you explain that?
2: Englishness and England is often used as a synonym before the, the Second World War a, as a term for Britain. So just as the English um, today use the two, two terms interchangeably, people beyond England did um, before the Second World War. So when people talk about fighting for England... They're really talking about fighting for Britain. It's just fascinating
1: that it was it actually extended to just the average person in Wales. would just say, or maybe I don't know. Was it the average? Was it was it the average person in Wales? Or yeah, I
2: probably they um, say to
1: themselves as a proud Englishman. It's just. Or fighting for England. I yeah, or
2: fighting for England, because England was kind of... I, I don't think many people would have described themselves as English, but... Pl- yeah, political Eng- idea. Yeah, England is, the, England is the state, Yeah, um, you know, and that's what kind of Britain is. So people would have talked about kind of that, because that's the language they'd have read about in the newspapers, that's the, that's the language of, of, of politics, so it's not surprising that it kind of, yeah. it, it, it drips down. But it's one of the issues with Welsh, with all kinds of national identity, that when people use this term, it doesn't tell us anything about what they mean by it. Yeah. Um, so we can kind of talk about people saying, I'm Welsh, but what does that mean? Or, mm-hmm. I'm British, but what does that mean? And we have lots of surveys that kind of give these figures of how people label themselves. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you anything yeah, at all. Statistics. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything at all about whether that's important to them.
1: It is interesting, though. Know, I mean, obviously, I've criticised devolution and the failures of it and... And the we- people lament, like, I guess, the weakness of Welsh identity sort of compared to other stateless nations. But it is interesting, isn't it, to think that it's only a hundred, even less than a hundred years ago that it would be normal for people to say Englishmen and things like that and refer to, when referring to themselves as Welsh people and things, which is, so in many ways, the, the progress is, is more rapid. I mean, it might seem, um, it might seem not much at the moment, not much to so us now, but in a broad scheme of history it probably is a massive advancement
2: yeah and I think if you want to use history in a political way and you know I'm a little bit reluctant about seeing history used used that way we but do it, do that in Wales a lot though. we do <laughs> do that a lot and if you for example if you wanted to build a case for Welsh identity using history the story you should tell is not one about being exploited by the English it's not one about Wales being a colony because you know Wales maybe was a colony in the medieval period but After the 16th century, it wasn't. Wales was part of the British Empire, it was at its heart. It wasn't, you know, it it wasn't a victim of it. Um, The story to tell is not trying to create an animosity between Wales and England and kind of this sense, oh, poor little Wales, we're always being exploited and suffering at the hands of the nasty people in England and London. The story to tell about Welsh history is a story of kind of resilience. That here we have a small country, a small people without any political identity, without any clear um, kind of legal status to their nationhood and yet they've clung on to a sense of not being English or being different, they've clung on to a kind of a cultural sense of identity, a language and that's survived within this kind of huge imperial power that was Britain and in many ways that's an amazing story. And the story of growth since the Second World War, that didn't happen accidentally. Wales devolution didn't just happen. It happened because people fought for it and people campaigned for it. And, you know, the recent history of Wales shows that you can change places. It's hard, it's difficult, um, but you can do that even when you're in a minority because devolution was never a popular cause. Um, Even the Welsh, even Welsh language rights were never a cause that... Appeal to the majority of the Welsh people. Things like the Welsh Language Act, public bilingualism, even, the, even devolution itself happened because a minority of people cared about it, campaigned for it, and made it into something which was a cause. But it also happened because there was a British state that wasn't hostile to Wales but was benign or in apathetic. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, in the relation the Wales has
1: had to British state. That- as you said, it's been it's been oversimplified, hasn't it? And, and to say that the British state has been on occasion benevolent towards Wales, you know, at, at worst, as you said, like some sort of malign neglect or whatever, it's not to deny power relations at all, is it? It's just to, just to say, for example, that the state is more sophisticated than that. Like they have to keep places like Wales and Scotland on side and things like that. And, but also, there, as you said, there are sympathetic individuals at are of the British state. There. Within the Labour Party and things like
2: that, um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, Wales, Wales and the British state aren't different things. You know, Wales is is part of that state. I mean, you know, in the First World War, one of the at that point the the biggest moment of crisis in British history, who was head of it, a Welsh-speaking Welshman. It's a very odd kind of colony that's, that that allow. it's a very odd empire where a member from the colonies suddenly becomes its leader. You know, they weren't separate. They were kind of part of the, part of the same thing. And, you know, in devolution, the Welsh Language Act, kind of funding for Welsh language and Welsh language culture, the British state has given those things, but it's done it because Wales isn't separate from it. Wales is part of it.
1: One of the things, one of the main strength, well, well, the great strengths of the book uh, is that you've had the temerity to not just focus on the valleys, um, which, I mean, in my... In my opinion, has been I mean that the focus on sort of a narrow interpretation of Wales, the focus on the valleys, has been massively detrimental. But we'll move past it. But your book is one of the rare ones that focuses on Cardiff. It focuses on other. It brings in other experiences. But going back to what we said earlier about Britishness, one of the things I think that, that gets sort of lost in. Talking about the B- Wales and its relationship to the British state, there's an assumption that parts of Wales, specifically Welsh-speaking Wales, are somehow always been outside the British state. Okay, maybe the valleys were at the heart of imperial South Wales and things like that, but almost that the you know Welsh-speaking areas like Gwynedd were somehow beyond it, beyond the pale. For one of the better ways. So, ha- looking back to like World War Two and all those sort of things you spoke about earlier, what? Well, what, where does Welsh-speaking Wales fit into that? Was it as just as British as the rest of?
2: Um, yes, I think it was just as British, and people in Welsh-speaking Wales in the middle of the 20th century, the vast, vast majority, would have regarded themselves as British. But it was also, I hesitate to say it, kind of more Welsh in some yeah. ways, because there is a greater sense of kind of cultural difference to large parts of england you know large parts of say the south wales valleys would have felt huge amount in common with the industrial parts of england class was this kind of very strong powerful bond between the working classes of wales and england class doesn't quite work in the same way in rural areas because it's not there isn't this kind of industrial base there isn't quite the same kind of large concentration of people's communities are more dispersed. So class doesn't have the same resonance. I'm not saying it's not there. Agricultural laborers did feel working class. Um, But class isn't quite as powerful um, in rural areas. And that leaves a little bit of a void. Um, And because, you know, language is really important because a lot of kind of national identities based on, you know, what you might call kind of banal signs, things that kind of flag up to you and remind you of where you belong the kind of the flag um that you see um and there aren't a huge amount of kind of banal signs of welshness in this period except um you know on things like a sporting international but in rural wales there are more because you're living your life through a language which is different to the mainstream in england You're, you're living your life through a language which isn't the language of government and public life in england and that must have i think led to a kind of a greater subconscious sense of difference so i'm not saying rural wales isn't as british because people would have felt british but they would have felt more different i think to a lot of people in england because of the language and that's not trying to say if you don't speak welsh you're not welsh but there is still often a greater consciousness of difference amongst those people who who live their life through the medium of welsh
0: uh, talking about the working class as well, and going back to how we were saying about, you know, there's that rapid growth. Like uh, you mentioned in your book, you know, um, a lot of people's um, state of living was increased greatly by like, the post-war spending. Like did that lead to a lot of tensions and then perhaps like fractures into what it meant to be working class as you were like competing for your na- with your neighbors? But,
2: yeah. yeah, affluence changes everything really i mean it's kind of one of the defining features of, of of post-war history not just in wales but in in the western world um you know the coming of televisions and washing machines and carpets and car- and motor cars it changes people's lives for the better but it does also create a lot of kind of fear at the time that something's been lost that communities which were defined by sameness where everybody lived the same kind of way of life and earned similar levels of wages, and that kind of created a bond between people. But that somehow fractures where you've got a world where, um, you know, communities where people are working in different places who are staying at home in the evenings to watch telly instead of doing communal activities. And there is this kind of, especially in the 50s and 60s, this strong sense that traditional working class culture is somehow fragmenting, and affluence is usually kind of to be blamed for that. Although well, there are other reasons as well. The growth of commuting, slum clearances, people moving around far more, education. You know, in the 60s, you've got people labelling themselves as working class, and yet they're, they're doctors and GPs, and people, some people are labelling labeling their class based upon what their parents did. But then there are other people who are saying, well, actually, I'm middle class, because look at the lifestyle I have, but they're working in a steelworks Or something. So class gets mixed up. But the people who tend to worry about this tend to be kind of middle class people on the left who are often. Same as now. Yeah. Often (laughs) bemoaning about what's happened to communities that they themselves have left behind. Or never been part of as well. Sometimes never been part of, but often people who in an era of social mobility have gone on from working class origins to university jobs and they're looking at the communities that they've left behind and saying, well, it's not like it used to be. Mm. And it's not, but for, if you're in that community, you know, you want a more comfortable, better way of life. And, you know, maybe having a nice home and a TV is a fair trade for some loss of community and yeah, class identity. Similarly,
0: that aspect of romanticizing the working class, especially in Wales, you know, something that's built identity around um, mining, which... Firework cabs just seems like the worst job ever. Like underground, crouched down, just hammering away like for like twelve hours a day. And as you said in you know in your book that there was that sense that when the pits were closed down, there was that sense of identity had been lost. But at the same time, it's like well, that's like a really terrible job that we never have to do again. So yeah. it's like a mixed bag,
1: isn't it? Yeah,
2: Minus used to say it's the best job in the world because of the camaraderie and the kind of the sense of masculinity and machismo it gives you. But they none of them wanted their sons to go down the pit.
1: No, no, no. like Lander. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so
2: you know, there's the best, the best kind of cultural statement I think about um, about the loss of the mines is, is is from Max Boyce. You know, there's a lot of kind of negativity towards kind of Max Boyce over the last kind of 30, 40 years, as if he's kind of showing the silly, sentimental Welshness that somehow should be politicised and is holding back kind of the march of Welsh nationalism. But you know, when he sang kind of to do it hard about the closure of pits and saying, well, yes, we have lost something. Yes, I am nostalgic, but I don't want to go back there. I think he was speaking for the majority of, of people. You know, mining brought wealth. Mining is the reason why communities exist in the South Wales Valleys, but it extolled a huge human and environmental cost. And, you know, it, the tragedy of mining is not that mining has gone. The tragedy of mining is that nothing came in to replace it. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, you have that loss of, like, social identity as well. And like, like you said, like, masculinity, you know, you don't have, perhaps in uh, post-industrial areas now, that readily sense of masculinity that can be tied to a job. So, like, you know, widely
2: yeah I mean the whole gender's another g- gender is a good example of kind of how we should think about Welsh history that by thinking in terms of national to tur- nationality i mean by just by writing a book about Wales, you're saying Wales is the single most important kind of conceptual framework if you want to put it that way but by by writing national histories, we're almost kind of telling a story in a way that doesn't represent how people lived it you know and there are massive changes in gender and kind of women's status in the post-war period that happen across, not just the UK, but across the kind of the Western world. And that that's nothing to do with Welshness, but it's a profound change to Welsh society. And sometimes by telling the story of Wales, we always look for what makes Wales different, and we miss what makes Wales the same as everywhere else. And that's just as important to understanding here as what makes us unique.
0: Oh, I was very, very funny though, despite living in a patriarchal society, like, Welsh man has, like the last say in the house, you know, it just like, kind of
1: inverts the whole thing. Well, not really, but like... As traditionally, it's, um, it has been seen to be that way, isn't it? One of the things I want to ask about my, I mean, um, you just said about writing the story of Wales. I mean, this is my reading of Welsh historiography based on, which is directly based on your reading, and also Neil Evans is. You know, we've had essentially, I think, two waves of historiography haven't we had the first sort of liberal nationalist interpretation by O.M. Edwards and Ross Carmel and things like that that wrote a history of Wales and Welshness very much almost in their own image of which emphasised rurality, the Welsh language. That was then sort of displaced by, I know it's a clunky term, but like labourist historians. Um, first like Glamour Williams and things like that and then latterly, Dysmith and um, probably being the most famous example. So that's the second wave, but and then you've had I think like, almost like a third wave. You had like that article by Andy Kroll and then Julie Light and things that said that there's been too much of a narrow focus on the South Hills valleys on mining on, the, which, which has excluded people of colour, you know, whole regions like the you know, Vale of Glamorgan, Cardiff, Newport, Wrexham, North Wales. You had I read. I've read all Dysmith's books, and North Wales just isn't in there really. Mm. Um, and it's almost this heroic narrative of like, the sort of Welsh proletariat. And obviously these works by Andy Crow and things like that, which came up more recently, have said, well, that wasn't actually what, that isn't actually the history of Wales. And then obviously Deirdre Bedo and things like that have said, well, there hasn't been enough history of women. So where does your book fit in in trying to, to tie all this together and, and move past these sort of paradigms?
2: It tries, and tries is, is the operative word, to kind of bridge them in the sense that it is about national identity. It is That is the underlying theme of, 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 of the book. But it's trying to say that national identity coincides with everyday life. And national identity is very really to the fore of how people live their lives. The Second World War, it often was. But for most people, life is about your partner, your girlfriend, your kids, what you're having for dinner, you know, your workmates. It's about everyday stuff. And I'm trying to say the two things coincide. And if you just talk about everyday life, you miss, what is a remarkable story about kind of the growth of Welsh identity? But if you just talk about the remarkable growth of Welsh identity, you misrepresent all the other stuff. Like and a
0: lot of, uh, you mentioned like uh, people in mean, the diaries in World War II and the war was very much in the background I, was that more something I consciously didn't want to think about or it being so far away that it wasn't immediate or is it just literally like you know
2: well even even in the second world war you know life carries on yeah. people still work and go to the pub and you know except in say you know when you're literally being bombed or you're worrying about your son and where he is and, and, and what he's doing you know in the forces by and large you still have to live your life But because you're living your life against the background, when you know there is this international conflict going on, you know that literally, you know, your life is in in danger, your way of life is in danger, your country is under threat. And when there's propaganda constantly bombarding you with, you know, this is a time when you matter and our country matters, national identity is more to the fore than it is in peacetime. But even then, that's not what you're thinking of most of the time.
0: No, it's quite an abstract concept that constantly, like, you know, go around the supermarket, you know,
2: thinking about yeah.
0: national identity while well, buying oranges. Yeah.
2: Well, not now. War is also a kind of classic example of something that historians often miss, that we judge things on face value. So you can have this kind of grand speech from Churchill telling everybody to kind of fight on the beaches and making people, trying to make people feel proud. But what we don't know is what did the listener think did how much yeah did they listen how much of it is there in how much of it is just there in the background um and you we need to be careful about reading these texts at face value and it's you know it's a lot of it's, it's the same with so many aspects of national identity just because you've got something which might seem on the surface to suggest we're all deeply patriotic just national identity is always there in, in the background and history has to try and kind of reconcile those two things.
0: Especially seen at an end point as well when you know that you know, things have turned out okay or haven't, then you can apply those to what happened at the time in a sense that you know, misconstrues them.
2: Yeah and it's very easy to see kind of the last 70 odd years of, of Welsh history as kind of this inevitable march towards devolution and possibly beyond. Um, and in some ways that is a story, um, but in other ways it's, it's misleading because that was never often the intention and it kind of meandered around and went backwards and that wasn't what people were, were thinking about mo- most of the time. There is always the danger for the historian of kind of judging things in retrospect because history is, is different to the past. In the past, people didn't know what was about to happen. As historians, we like do. a
0: parallel to Brexit right now. They Like in 20 twenty thirty years time, when you know yeah, we have look like, back and say, well, why were people up in arms and like taking the streets? But yeah, I just didn't realise. Yeah,
1: but as you said, there's no necessarily. As you said, there's definitely not a uh, a link between, for example, what like Churchill was saying about my national identity, or like the Kitchener posters in World War One, or whatever. And then um, compared to what people were actually thinking. Um, but I mean, earlier you said like you know class was like important in Wales. I mean, my, my opinion, my reading of it is that, that I feel that, well, based on these like, works like Andy Krall and things like that, they've said that hasn't that been, has that been overemphasised in Wales? Because, you know, we've folk, like, a lot of the histories of South Wales are focused on South Wales Minor Federation, they focused on, you know, Arthur Horner, these radical communists and things like that. And can you not equally say, well, actually, the man on the street might not have been, like, a militant socialist. And, like, your work, and, in, and there's been other work which has shown actually the Tory party have always been very you know strong in the valleys I mean to what extent has that been submerged the, the plurality of identity within South Wales for example has been submerged by I think the particular reading of South Wales.
2: Class is just like national identity you can read it in different ways and we shouldn't assume that just because someone labels themselves working class that automatically meant they were a militant socialist you know I think in the middle of the 20th century and certainly before the Second World War, the vast majority of people in areas like the Valleys would have described themselves as working class. But that didn't mean that class was like this lens through which they looked at every aspect of their life. That didn't mean that they necessarily felt hugely different to the middle classes or they didn't feel they had something in common um, with the middle classes. It didn't mean that they didn't feel a sense of national identity. It didn't mean that gender wasn't important. Identities are kind of always... Contextual, They come out at different times and they'll mean different things to different peoples. And it is very easy to kind of see working-class history in this heroic, you know, there's this heroic struggle. And undoubtedly, that's part of the story. But the miner who was more interested in his pint than his politics is just as important as the miner who deeply cared about his politics and was radical and revolutionary. You know, history is all, all about hearing the different voices that exist. We wouldn't look around us today and expect everybody to be the same. So why, why should the past have been like that? You know, personality matters. People are individuals. They have their own takes on the world. There are people who were revolutionary and wanted to kind of bring down capitalism from their terraced house in the Rhonda. There were other people who were more interested in going to the pub or looking after their pigeons or, you know, playing with their kids you know we shouldn't all again we shouldn't think although all minors were tough macho men who didn't have any emotion there were plenty who were intellectual who cared about their families who helped with the washing up you know life isn't black and white the past isn't black and white
0: it struck me as well um, that Wales is particularly socially conservative isn't it you know you talk about um, especially with television and um, the way that imports a lot of other cultures specifically America It was almost an attack on this old kind of church going uh, population and you know and it was a big thing for um on sundays was it that people could go and drink down the pub you know that was a huge turning point where it traditionally was just meant for church and family
2: yeah i mean large parts of wales were very socially conservative um and you know the, the the influence of the chapel is is fundamental to that i'd be a bit reluctant in kind of trying to say that wales is more much more socially conservative than other kind of rural parts, um, or indeed industrial parts of England. Social conservatism almost defines large parts of British society. Nonetheless, the Welsh chapels were slightly unusual in a a British context. They did have this kind of power um, over aspects of society. After all, Wales was the only part of Britain where the pubs were shut on Sundays. But in some ways... What happens to kind of Welshness is it gets associated with that, because Welshness and the chapels were so closely related. the chapels were one of the, the few places, the few kind of public platforms for the Welsh language and a, and a Welsh identity. What that means is that a lot of people regarded Welshness as old-fashioned and socially conservative, and therefore, if you want to reject a chapel way of life, almost by implication, you're rejecting Welshness. And I think that one of the things that saves Welshness and saves Wales ultimately as a cultural construct is the decline of religion. Had the chapels held on to, um, you know, held, continued their grip on how people live their lives in rural Wales, it would have been very diff- difficult for a young generation who is rejecting that social conservatism to embrace Welshness. But th- the chapels lose some of their influence and that frees up Welshness to be redefined to be um, a language which you can sing pop songs on in, you can have sex in, it be- to become part of modern the <laughs> modern world. That's what I thought. Yeah. And the decline of the chapels enables Welshness to be redefined as a, pos- as a modern identity. So there is a social conservatism, it is very powerful, it declines just as it does it everywhere in Britain. Um, but its decline in some ways is more significant for Wales because it frees up, I'd argue, kind of national identity to be too redefined.
1: And it's created like Sunday, Funday and Sunday club and things like that, um, and Super Sunday, uh, which wouldn't have happened. It was just normal Sunday, <laughs> which wouldn't have happened. It was yeah, it's just normal. Grab the ashes to Super Sunday. But what about you know? I mean, what about these sort of the borderlands, know, like, the anthracite coalfield, and you know, Gwynedd, and you know, these these are places and. and these are all these are all industrial, uh, you know, Ross and Wrexham, These are all industrial, very working class, but also very Welsh-speaking areas. Have they still got the same tension between chapel and proletarian culture, or not?
2: I think everywhere in, in Wales the chapels lose their, you know, lose their decline. That's sorry, lose some of their influence. The growth of secularism. Um, you know, is one of the, the defining features of kind of Western European society um, in this period. It's more noticeable in the rural areas because they had a, the chapels had a greater grip. Um, I don't know if anyone's kind of done any research on it, but I suspect chapel attendance is still higher in rural areas and, and probably the same in, in, in England as well than it is in urban areas even then, it's a minority thing. You know, the chapels are almost kind of part of history in the same way that mining is. You know, some people obviously still go. Um.
0: To the mines. <laughs> yeah. Just one do, just remembering. But, yeah.
2: but the chap the chapels have become part of the past. Not God hasn't. And you know, one of the, the weird things about kind of Western society in many ways is that religious belief is often still very strong. And it's kind of historians of religion. Talk about kind of believing without belonging, um, so people still believe in some kind of higher deity, but they don't actively go to church.
1: I thought there's a good way to describe those people, you know, they say I'm spiritual or whatever, and it's just people who are scared of dying but are too lazy to go to church on Sundays, so they have to clean up. <laughs> but yeah, fair play to God for being resilient. Yeah. These years.
0: Even when people are just not into it in God, they still the background. shout out to God at the end.
1: So. You said, about, you said earlier that devolution isn't inevitable, I um, just want to talk about almost the arc of history that's brought mm-hmm. to devolution. So how, I mean, you've got the growth of the welfare state, I know you've written previously that sort of Thatcherism is maybe one of the things that triggers devolution. How would you say, I mean, but and earlier you said that devolution wasn't something that's was inevitable. How would you describe, I guess, this sort of passage from 1939 to where we are now? If, I mean, what are the key events? The key people. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a slow, stuttering process that happens for lots of different lots of different reasons. Uh, the roots of it do lie in the interwar depression, in 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 many ways, because once Britain starts to reconstruct itself, you have a Welsh Labour Party that. Is worried about where where this is going to leave Wales. Although it's not suggesting that Wales should be devolved or anything or anything like that, it's still wanting to make sure that the Welsh economy and Welsh needs aren't forgotten in this. They don't all agree on this. Nye Bevan, you know, was was far more kind of ambivalent about it than many of his colleagues but there is a kind of this kind of cultural nationalist strand within the Labour Party that's saying we need to recognise Welsh identity in this reconstruction of the British state because if we don't we may get forgotten again um, and remember what happened last time and that has this trickle-down effect of, you know, the Labour government sets up a kind of an advisory council to kind of look at Welsh issues and to make sure they don't get forgotten. The Conservative Party see an opportunity here to win a few votes, so they claim they set up the first minister for Welsh affairs. Um, They get into trouble over Trewerin and they become a bit sensitive about some of the criticisms, um, and that kind of ups the ante, so kind of Labour promise a secretary of state. That's introduced um, in the 1960s. So it's
0: less about benevolence and more about, like, political capital for
2: Wales? Um, It's a mixture of, kind of, governments reacting to what some people are asking for. Um, It's people doing the asking, and people in places of influence as well, people um, like James Griffiths, who becomes the first Secretary of State for Wales, who, you know, was a passionate Welshman, and believed that Wales should have some kind of political identity. And he pushes for that. And it's also a government that is willing to listen. I mean, you know, one, one little example of that. Um, after, the, after the flooding of, of Truerin, which causes a national outcry, maybe not quite the outcry that's sometimes remembered, but nonetheless there is an outcry that Welsh interests have been overlooked and that the water, Welsh water has been sent to England. And when you, when you read the government archives, you can see that the government had not really anticipated this and they're worried about this and they're sensitive. And they're eager to make sure this criticism doesn't happen again. So when they start talking about reforming the licensing laws in England um, and Wales, they're saying, well, the pubs are shut in Wales on Sundays. Um, Should we open them? If we do open them um, on a Sunday, should we have a referendum before doing this? If we do have a referendum, isn't the industrial parts of Wales, the urban part of Wales, going to outvote the rural part of Wales, the rural part of Wales that we've just offended about Trewerin. So they introduce a system of county referendums where counties can decide whether their pubs should be open on a, on a Sunday. And that's a direct response to the criticisms that emerged after in So...
1: British State's so clever, isn't it? It's very, so sophisticated.
2: Well, at one level it is sophisticated, but another level it's remarkably unsophisticated mm-hmm. and it's reacting. And kind of one of the problems with kind of seeing Wales as kind of this exploited colony is it suggests that somehow the state is thinking through these things. Yeah. And it's often just... A
1: part of your plan. Yeah, yeah,
2: It's just like <laughs> but, Brexit. It's fumbling its way through stuff, yeah. reacting to individual short-term crises, coming up with a solution that's going to try and keep everybody happy. And because it's reacting in those ways, it is willing to listen to criticisms from from Wales. And it's always sensitive. What it never knows is, and you find this very explicitly debated in kind of government documents, are the nationalists who's complaining, are they representing a much wider feeling that just hasn't articulated itself yet? Is Gwynver Evans just a lone sentimental romanticist, or does he actually represent this big body of Welsh sentiment that's out there that just hasn't quite found its voice yet? And the government doesn't really know the answer, so it doesn't want to take too much of a risk.
1: Yeah.
2: So it is willing to listen to people. So the growth of devolution is very much about small gains being made, because people are asking for it, and a government that's kind of willing to concede it. I mean, even in ninety-seven, Tony Blair isn't interested in, in devolution. But the Scottish Labour Party is, and the Scottish Labour Party is pushing for it. And Blair hasn't really got any major reason to say no. So kind of goes with it. And if it's good enough for Scotland, it's good enough for Wales. So kind of the Welsh Labour Party kind of pushed for it as well. It was never kind of part of some grand strategy in Wales. um, But it happens because, you know, maybe maybe now was the time. And people do look back at what happened in the 1980s and a government that the vast majority of people in Wales had never voted for. Um, and which had caused massive economic dislocation, and I don't think many people seriously believed devolution was going to reinvent the Welsh economy, but it might have been a barrier against um, what happened in the 80s getting, getting repeated. So there is, people are pushing for it, maybe not with huge enthusiasm, maybe with not some grand plan about what it's going to do and how it's going to work, Um, You have a British Labour Party that's kind of willing to to go along with that because if that's what people want. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of just happens almost a little bit by accident. And that's been devolution's whole problem. Nobody ever really sat down to think about how is this going to work, but more importantly, what exactly is it going to do? Because it became a principle more than a grand plan. And I think often when people are critical of devolution, because they have to higher expectation of it you, you know you can't change the nature of a of the economy um, through in some ways is a glorified yeah. county council the british government isn't in a position to revitalize um, you know declining industrial areas so why should you expect um the assembly to do it the problems that wales face are deep structural ones based along long process of history not a process of exploitation by england but the creation of economy based upon small numbers of heavy industries, which are no longer there. Changing that is something that takes decades and decades and decades. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, and it's going to be a long, slow process, changing that. And you can't really blame devolution for the level of poverty that exists. But I also don't think you can blame London either, because you know, there wasn't ever some kind of grand plan to exploit the Welsh economy. That's fascinating,
1: the idea of like almost scrambling around in the dark and just accidentally getting a little bit more, a little bit more. What you said just then about the role of influential people like James Griffiths and things like that. Um I've just been reading Andrew Andrew Ronsley's book on the inside story of New Labour and what you talked about Blair was at best like ambivalent about devolution, particularly for Wales, which they were like, well, they even in the Labour government they thought that the Welsh didn't have any appetite for Welsh devolution, and, and if you think to like 1997, you know Scotland sort of voted for overwhelmingly almost. In Wales, you've got the No campaign, which was to completely disorganised and had absolutely no money. Um, given that all the political parties in Wales really were on board with devolution, they had a million pound campaign, which was a lot of money for a political campaign. And it's still only just passed. What was significant was they said how skilled Ron Davis and that the role. I mean, obviously, Ron Davis had his incidents and things like that. But they were saying what they would do. They would have these big debates where um, Donald Dewar, Dewar is that pronounced it yeah. or, and another British uh, like a lord would go head to head and thrash out the Scottish devolution settlement, what we're going to get. And obviously, what happens is traditionally the Scots just ask. They always ask for more. Um, and then what said would happen? These people were sort of absolutely exhausted having talked. Talked about Scottish devolution and then Ron Davis would enter and we would just go, oh, can we just get this, this, and this. And they were like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, if it wasn't for him pushing for those things and using his position of influence in there and really sort of really driving it through himself, it probably wouldn't have been even the settlement they got at the time. Because he yeah. could see what Scotland got and then go, well, I'll take a little bit of that as well. You just judge it and say, I'll, I'll take a little bit more.
2: Jim Griffiths, Ron Davis. Um, win Roberts who we haven 't mentioned um, who was um, a junior minister at the Welsh office throughout the 1980s these people changed the course of Welsh politics Ron davis is incredibly important and that hasn 't been fully acknowledged because his you know once the evolution actually happens his political career um, goes off in different direct different directions um, But history, I think, will remember him, you know, will remember him differently, especially as kind of some of the archives and stuff start to come out about, um, you know, what was happening um, in in, in the 1990s. But I think history shows individuals can change the basic structures of society. You know, Nicola Sturgeon's another example. You know, Nigel Farage, for all, you know, much, much as I... Dislike what he stands for, he has changed the course of British history.
1: And Blair.
2: um Blair. Ah, oh yeah, and, and Tony Blair. You know, individuals matter, and that should give people kind of faith um, that you can kind of stand up for what you believe in, and if kind of fortunes on your side in economic things are drifting in your direction, you can change. Um, you know, you can change the course of history.
0: Right place, right time, type thing. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: it, there's a lot of luck and a lot of kind of accidents um, about history. Nothing is nothing is inevitable. Devolution happened because kind of a load of people fought for different things at different times and made it happen.
1: It's interesting. I mean, what I'm struck by is sort of the, the contemporary, almost, almost contemporary Welsh condition. It's not just, I mean, Aditya he came down and did a few, I thought, brilliant articles in The Guardian on sort of, Place to vote for Brexit. And he said, you know, one of the prevailing narratives since Brexit is the people who have been left behind, and obviously it's like anger. But we were talking to him, and not, like we said, but it's not really anger, I would say, in Wales, because it's not like a new thing that Wales has been left behind. It's almost, it feels like prevailing nihilism. And I was reading that book, you know, by Rawlsy about the rise of New Labour and how even within Whitehall, there was an assumption that the Welsh were just like anti politics. That's what they thought. They didn't want more devolution they didn't want devolution because it was sick of politicians and it's almost like this picture is painted of a detached sort of cynicism and negativity um so i mean has that always been i mean has that always been the, i mean what what's, what what's been this sort of engagement i know the Wales didn't always used to have very low voter turnouts in in elections have we been have we always been this depoliticized or is this a recent thing
2: there is um There's a long history of kind of turnout falling, um, very gradually. Um, Well, let let me rephrase that. There's a long history of kind of being disengaged from politics and people voting but not necessarily thinking it's really going to change something and people feeling angry about politics and somehow these politicians don't represent me. Um, Only, in some ways, quite relative terms, quite relatively recent terms, you know, sort of the 90s onwards has that translated into not voting? And and Blair is key there, because...
1: Triangulation. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Blair's elected with a massive mandate, and some things happen, but people, it wasn't this social revolution that some people kind of expected. And that leads to a kind of a degree of of kind of marginalization and, and, and people feeling, well, politics can't change anything. We've got rid of Thatcher, we've got rid of Major, now we have a Labour government, and ultimately did my life get any any better? Um, I wouldn't just blame Tony Blair, you know, you do see the seeds of it, um, you know, beforehand, but also we have a, an electoral system, which means that so many votes, people's votes, don't count. You know, if, if you live in a safe Labour seat in the South Wales Valleys, your vote is not going to change who wins the general election. Um, and that that does not help.
0: Especially with two major parties as well. Uh, as well as like two sides of the same coin you know just good after a certain voter right then it's great so people left behind are they
2: yeah i mean i think you know we can exaggerate the kind of the similarities between kind of labor and conservative in say tony blair's era i think there were there were genuine differences but nonetheless that wasn't very obvious um to a lot of people and it didn't help that Tony Blair played down his radicalism in some ways. And, you know, in some ways it was his government was doing things that were more radical than he was trying to appear because he yeah. didn't want to alienate a middle class vote. Just as kind of Thatcher in some ways played up a radicalism. Yeah. And in some ways she didn't get rid of the state. Um, she didn't um, kind of bring about many of the social changes that she kind of claimed, claimed to be. She wanted to be more radical to win votes. Tony Blair wanted to kind of say, "No, you know, I'm kind of not, I'm a nice, safe choice," but almost by by playing to that kind of that that kind of middle class, middle England vote, he alienated um, a section of the electorate that he had done something for. I mean, things like the minimum wage were genuine political achievements that did make life better for people, but they didn't boast about that enough. They didn't talk about. Um, you know the, the really quite important things that, that New Labour did achieve I mean New Labour it may not have been enthusiastic about it but New Labour did change the course of British history simply by introducing devolution
1: So how would you characterise I mean we've come at the end but how would you characterise you know Wales since devolution I mean not just politically but maybe socially maybe socially what have the main changes been to your mind
2: um, Devolution has changed The sense of Welshness in some ways, it's kind of become common sense, if you like, that it exists, that Welsh devolution exists. Don't forget, you know, in 97, only one in four Welsh voters voted for the creation of the Welsh Assembly. Now, hardly anybody wants to get rid of it. Um, It's become common sense that the Welsh NHS and the Welsh education system should be run from Cardiff. And that in itself is a radical change. Whether the Welsh NHS and the Welsh education system has changed very much in itself, no. You know, the experience of going to a hospital or a school in Wales and England probably aren't really that different. Um, Welshness is more prominent because we have devolution, because we have a media that, you know, isn't as strong as it should be by a very long way, but nonetheless, you know, there is more of a media than the, the, than there used to be. Welshness is kind of more common sense in some ways. It's kind of more it's everywhere, in a way that it wasn't quite so before devolution. The basic structures of society, gender, class, inequalities, etc., none of that's changed. Capitalism is still created a Wales that is hugely, hugely unequal. Um, but nonetheless, the very fact that decisions that affect Welsh life are taken in Cardiff, and nobody thinks that's odd, in itself is a remarkable change. And devolution is now the status quo. And that is a significant historical trend.
1: So based on your expertise on the sort of the long march of history and sort of these arcs and things like that, and the scrambling around in the sort of accidental process that has given us the evolution, where do you see, you know, where do you see, look, if when someone writes a whales in, I don't know, another 50 or 100 years, where do you see it?
2: Historians are very bad at looking forward. Um, <laughs>
1: I like alternative histories. I think they're great.
2: They are. Um,
1: will we all be wearing capes? But like, for example, what would have happened in you know nineteen ninety-seven if Wales had voted no? We yeah. we know, you was know, a very small, tiny margin. Yeah. Could easily have happened. Would be interesting.
2: What happens to Wales will depend upon what happens to the English and what happens to Scotland. If Scotland leaves the UK, and it, that is still an if. I don't think that's guaranteed. But if it does happen, and there is a fair chance that it will. Everything changes, um, not just for us, but for England as well, because England will start to kind of question the union. You know, the biggest problem of devolution is that England doesn't have it. If England had it, if the UK worked in a more kind of symmetrical way, then it would be much stronger. But at the moment, it doesn't. And increasingly, English voters will start to ask the questions of the UK that they asked of the EU. Why are we subsidizing other people? the Welsh. The Welsh. So um, could, and possibly the Northern Irish as
1: well. So could, is it possible that we could actually, we we're talking about, I know that people implied are talking about, you know, we have to sort of have an independence vote and things like that. Is it possible we could actually get kicked out against that? Well, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Like,
0: no, I don't. <laughs> You've got what you wanted,
1: Yeah. But. Yeah. Not yeah. Not may, exactly how we wanted to leave the pub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> may, maybe not kicked out, but we could still end up with some kind of independent Wales, maybe not a completely independent Wales, not because of anything that we particularly desired, but because England kind of pushed powers our way and because Scotland went completely. But if Scotland goes, suddenly people will ask questions about what does it mean to be Welsh and are we an equal nation? And that's, you know, we shouldn't underestimate kind of that emotional thing that, well, if it's good enough for Scotland, it's good enough for us. And, you know, we may end up having to have this debate. But because Britishness is so still very powerful in Wales, because yeah. a fifth of the Welsh population were born in England, maybe a third of the Welsh population, according to the census, don't label themselves as Welsh. If Welsh independence is, got to, is going to work, it can't be based upon some kind of sentimental Welshness, and a Welshness based upon a history. It has to be based upon an economic argument that it will create a fairer, more tolerant um, society. The Union, I don't think, has failed. Capitalism has failed people. But nationalism has become the answer, um, even though that wasn't the question. Yeah. And what Welsh in, if Welsh independence is going to happen, it shouldn't be based upon national identity. It should be based upon, this is going to make a fairer, wealthier, more equal society. That's how you bring it about. And if I was going to be part of the Welsh independence campaign, that's what I would be concentrating on, not some stupid idea of Welsh history. oh, we were all exploited by the English. Sometimes we were, more often we weren't.
1: Awesome. John's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thanks
0: so much for coming on. Uh, as tradition, Martin, anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? This
1: <laughs> is give a bit you like everyone give comes you a heads up. Sorry. Yeah,
0: everyone comes on and they're like, really good at speaking. Um, <laughs> but as soon as you ask them like if they want to give a shout out to, everyone was blank.
2: So. Um, and maybe I should have a shout out to the Swans because if they don't, um, if they get relegated, the football team. Yeah, uh, yeah, the football. Yeah, the fo- no, no, no the fo- <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely the fo- Definitely the football team, um, because that is a uh, an important part of my life. Although relegation isn't the end of the world by a long way. No, um, it's not. But I still think. I mean, it's nice to be cheered up by three points here and it? I thought
1: I thought you were over the woods to be honest, but um, looks like you're gonna, you could get sucked back in. But yeah. We'll see. are you going to Dublin
2: I'm not going to Dublin I shall be watching it on tally
1: I'm going but I'm not drinking so
2: wait,
1: wait. No. <laughs> no. Rick no no, no okay. it's going to be a new Wales away experience <laughs> any chat for you, Dad? Uh, shouts outs me uh, to Graham as normal haven't seen him for like a month oh okay. but yeah S- hope, 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 hope you're doing <laughs> hope we doing okay, man <laughs> um, yeah, shouts outs to the family um, and that's that, I think Uh, Shout out to me! I'm gonna give a shout out to my new washing machine that's coming
0: this week. That's my other one. Um, Just started billowing smoke at the drum. It's not good. It's not. No So my mum. Oh, shout out to my mum for doing all my washing for me. Yeah, mine too. Thanks, mum. Even though your washing machine. See, consumer
2: durables, they make life better. (laughs) Yeah, it's an important historical (laughs) (laughs) trend.
0: Cool. Alright, Thanks so much for listening. Cheers,
1: guys. Bye. I'm a gamer and uh, I'm into massive multiplayer online gaming communities. If you meet me online by Grub's Tavern, I will show you where the treasure is hidden. My online alter ego is 18 feet tall and has giant wings like an angel's, but also like a demon's. His name is Carlor. Carlor can f- anything and he will and has women, devils, angels, animals. You need to get with him because my penis only has a tip. It's like someone glued an acorn to the bottom of my torso.